Welcome to A History of Violence, a podcast about violence from terrorism to taekwondo. The image of two heroic champions meeting in battle forms a major part of our understanding of ancient warfare. Epic poetry, modern movies and fantasy novels are replete with scenes of single combat, sometimes on the battlefield and sometimes as some sort of prearranged duel. Today I want to explore whether this phenomenon really occurred, or whether it is simply an example of artistic license and classical writing which bleeds into our historical understanding. I'm largely going to sidestep the related practices of dueling and trial by combat, which certainly existed up until fairly recently in some cases. Instead, I'm going to focus on the use of champions in war. I will basically go through some famous examples and discuss how accurate they might be, and what they can tell us about the practice. So, when we talk about champion warfare, there are some very prominent examples which jump to mind immediately. Everyone has heard of David and Goliath. The biblical account has the Philistine champion Goliath challenged in the Israelite army led by King Saul. The Israelites are challenged to send out their champion to face the giant Goliath and therefore settle the war in single combat. For 40 days, Saul refuses to meet the challenge, but eventually a young boy called David steps up, killing the giant Philistine warrior with a slingshot. This instantly breaks the morale of the Philistine army, allowing the Israelites an easy victory. This sets the scene for David's rise to power and hints at Saul's unworthiness. In Homer's Iliad, one of the oldest works of Western literature, there are numerous examples of single combat. A Greek prophecy predicted that the first Greek to land on shore would die. Cleverly, Odysseus throws his shield onto the shore and uses it to step off. Protesilaus, another Greek hero, stepped directly onto the soil. He was killed in the ensuing battle by Hector, the Trojan commander and their finest fighter. Later on, Hector also challenged the Greeks to single combat to settle the entire siege. Eventually, nine Greek heroes reluctantly stepped up and drew lots, with Ajax being chosen. Hector and Ajax fought for a day, with neither claiming victory. Later again, Hector killed Patroclus during a battle, while he was wearing the armour of Achilles. Patroclus was the probable lover, or, if you're a conservative classicist, just the super best friend of the immortal warrior Achilles. A wrath-filled Achilles meets Hector in battle, killing him and dragging his body around the city. This marks the end of the Iliad, a historically inspired work which should be viewed more as mythology than anything else. For example, Greek battles of this period are generally thought of as being fought by two opposing phalanxes, tight formations which use shield and spears. So these depictions of numerous orderly one-on-one battles are certainly a form of artistic license. Shakespeare similarly used single combat as a narrative device throughout his plays, including in Richard II, Henry IV and Macbeth. Spoiler alert, but the ending of Macbeth has the Mad King, believing he's invincible, being slain on the battlefield by the avenging hero Macduff. These make for great scenes and must have made his plays the action movies of their day. However, their historical accuracy is dubious. For example, Macbeth really only shares the name of the Scottish King, with the rest being largely made up. Finally, my favourite example is that of the Burmese and Siamese leaders fighting from the back of elephants. I apologise for the pronunciation that's coming up. There are numerous different accounts of this battle, but the broad strokes are that the Siamese king 
Naraswan and the Burmese Crown Prince Mingyi Shua met in battle in 1593, with a challenge to single combat being issued by the Siamese king. Swa accepted and was killed, with his invasion of modern-day Thailand ending in failure. However, the Burmese account of this hasn't been failed by a mortar round, so we must take into account the differences in the historical record here. However, there is evidence that elephant duels did take place in this region, so it's absolutely possible that this occurred. So from these examples we can see two types of single combat. One is fighting between two notable warriors as part of a wider battle. There is a battle already going on, but the two commanders somehow run into each other and fight. This is depicted in Macbeth and some of the battles in the Iliad. The other is when two warriors agree to fight, separate from the rest of the battle. This is champion warfare, as shown in the fighting between Ajax and Hector or David and Goliath. Later this merged into what we might call the judicial duel or trial by combat, or dueling as it sort of continued into the modern world. But for this episode let's focus on champion warfare. Was this a real practice, or just something we get from Greek mythology being translated and carried on through fiction? Champion warfare is present in epic poetry and myth from right around the world, including in the Old Testament, which contains both the David and Goliath story, and also an account of warfare between two sets of twelve champions at the Battle of Gibeon. Although the twelve warriors were supposed to settle the war, they all killed each other almost instantly and the bloody battle resumed, making this a failure of champion combat to achieve anything. In the Water Margin, Romance of the Three Kingdoms and other ancient Chinese writings, champion combat features heavily, with the same being true of Indian and Irish mythology, for example. The early history of Islam also saw champions fight as a prelude to wide-scale battles. So it seems to be an international phenomenon suggesting that there is some truth to it, but it is one which is closely tied to religion and mythology, making it difficult to know how seriously to take this as a historical practice. So although many of the sources for this are semi-fictional, with clear elements of dramatisation and mythology, there are lots of diverse sources from across different time periods and regions, giving some credence to the idea that champion combat must have happened sometimes. After all, the mythology probably took it from real events. Often single combat is structured around a single heroic figure, which I think is more likely to be post-hoc propaganda. It's very convenient when a plucky young soldier heroically slays a hulking, brutal enemy champion before going on to become king. But there is better evidence for the practice of having small groups of champions fight to decide battles. For example, the Greek historian Herodotus describes the Battle of the 300 Champions in 546 BC between Argos and Sparta. Rather than having a full-scale war, the two city-states decided to put forward 300 of their best in a fight to the death. However, confusion allowed both sides to claim victory, meaning that a full-scale battle was still fought shortly later. Despite the early date, Herodotus is considered to be a reliable source for the time period, and this suggests that some form of battle did take place. Plus, it just kind of makes sense. Greek states were literally cities, meaning that they drew their armies from a tiny population. While large empires in Persia and Egypt could field 100,000 or more men, a single city could probably only field 10 to 20,000. It makes sense that the cities would want to find a way to avoid risking their entire armies, particularly on internal Greek wars. However, in this case the tactic didn't really work since the two sides still met in full battle eventually. 
A similar example is the Battle of Norfinch in Scotland in 1396, which is pretty well evidenced. This involved two clans, or possibly two branches of the Chatting Confederacy, settling a dispute by putting forward 30 of their best men in a fight witnessed by the Scottish King Robert III. I think a similar logic applies here to the Greek case. These were clans which had relatively small armies, looking to settle what was likely an internal dispute within an alliance or confederation. Risking the entire army on such a battle would be self-defeating. Even victory could leave them weakened and easily defeated by other rival clans or foreign invaders. So having a limited battle makes strategic sense. In this case, it seems like the matter was actually settled. The apparent cause of this dispute was who should take precedence in the order of battle, or which different branch of the same army should take precedence in the command hierarchy. So ironically, it was a battle about battles. Another noteworthy and much celebrated example is the combat of the Surte during the Breton War of Succession in the 12th century. Surte knights and men-at-arms from the France and House of Blois fraction fought Surte people from the English House of Montfort side. This was arranged like a tournament with refreshments and spectators. Contemporary commentators viewed it as a great example of chivalry, with the bravery and honour of both sides being praised. However, later French ballads did begin portraying the English knights as the villains, showing the importance of this kind of event as a form of early propaganda. It's worth noting that, again, this didn't actually affect the course of the war. The two armies still battled, with the combat of the Surte being more of a chivalric display than anything else. Although the French Blois faction won the combat of the Surte, the Montfort side won the overall war of succession. One last important example here is that of Marcus Valerius Corvus, a Roman soldier and politician. Before one battle during a campaign in northern Italy, a gigantic Gaul challenged the Romans to single combat. Young Corvus stepped forward to meet the challenge after gaining the permission of the Roman consul. A crow landed on his helmet, indicating divine favour. This blessing was confirmed when the crow flew at the Gaul, allowing the Roman to kill him easily and claim victory. Roman historian Livy describes the effects of this victory. Gods and man alike took part in the battle, and it was fought out to a finish. Unmistakably disastrous to the Gauls, so completely had each army anticipated a result corresponding to that of the single combat. So this was about morale and showing divine favour, as well as winning the fight. Ancient warfare was often about morale, and seeing their champion defeated sapped the goals of their spirits. And it didn't just help the Romans win the battle, it also helped young Marcus Valerius in his budding career. He was elected consul in absentia at the tender age of 22, and went on to become consul six times in his life. This is quite similar to the socio-political role of dueling well into the 1800s. Firstly, victory was not just about who was the best warrior, but it also showed some sort of divine favour or blessing. This was true of knights, but also remained true of pistol duels, as the notoriously unreliable nature of early firearms meant that the victory was down to luck as much as skill. This was a theological justification for trial by combat. The winner was chosen by God. Formalised duelling was also used as a way to advance one's own reputation and political career. For a much more modern equivalent, we can look at the career of US President Andrew Jackson, who apparently challenged over 100 men to duels. From among these varied examples of arranged champion combat, I think we can see two main types. One is the pre-battle morale booster, 
They do nothing directly to alter the course of the battle or the war, but they do help to boost morale by showing divine favour or simply the superiority of one side's warriors. Another is a sort of proxy battle, a stand-in for the war using smaller forces to avoid risking the bigger one. This seems like a rather civilised way of doing warfare, and it makes sense for small forces which can't afford to lose men in unnecessary battles. There is plenty of evidence that this did occur, although more often with small groups than single fighters. However, it often seems not to work particularly well, with sore losers falling back on all-out battle. So where do we stand? Did this type of combat really happen? I think yes and no. The fact that champion combat shows up all over the world across different time periods is evidence that it existed in the ancient world. However, this is often deployed as part of a mythical or religious story, with the good guys usually winning. It usually shows who's on God's good side. So while such practices almost certainly happened in various forms, we should have a sceptical attitude about any single example of it. As we move forward in history, we see continuing evidence and examples, often involving small teams of fighters. This makes sense as no one wants to risk mass casualties if they can help it. This is especially true of internal disputes which happen within a wider community or civilization, in which too much internal bloodshed could weaken the whole community. So Greek city-states, Scottish and Japanese clans, or rival Russian retinues might use champion warfare to settle their issues without dragging the entire country into it. There's a certain amount of trust built up because of a shared culture and legal norms, and possibly even a king or some other type of authority to oversee the contest. But we don't often see two large empires settling external wars with this type of practice. The stakes are too high, and there would be little to stop the other side reneging on any promises that were made. So not only is there a good body of evidence for this type of pre-arranged champion warfare, but it just seems to make strategic sense. And in a way, that's the best argument for its historical existence. But it was rare, largely limited to internalised disputes and often failing to achieve a solid, long-lasting resolution. The only example which I've found which is both well-evidenced and which seemed to work was the Battle of Northinch, although if you know of any better ones, please let me know in a comment. So this type of violence seems to be particularly prominent among honour-bound warrior classes, such as European knights or Japanese samurai. Codes of chivalry meant that this sort of warfare would allow the participants to show off their martial prowess while potentially avoiding greater casualties. So it's a win-win. However, the practice and lifestyle of these warrior castes ran headlong into social, political, economic and most of all technological changes which sent this type of heroic warfare into terminal decline. The decline of chivalric warfare could, and probably will be, an episode in itself. But I'll give the broad strokes here just to situate the context in which champion warfare started to disappear. In Europe, the chivalric tradition was heavily associated with crusading. However, this had started to go badly off track, with defeats in the Middle East and increasingly dishonourable, controversial, intra-Christian crusades in Europe. Rifts had opened up between kings and the church, leading political rulers to rely more and more on mercenaries and especially professional soldiers, and less on religious orders who might have divided loyalties. This made for more effective armies, but made up of people less given to heroic acts of champion combat. 
This expansion and professionalisation of the armed forces came hand in hand with technological changes which made knights almost obsolete. The longbow and crossbow allowed decently trained soldiers to kill knights without ever getting within striking distance, while well-drilled pike formations could break cavalry charges. Rulers came to understand what Machiavelli points out in Discourses on Livy. Champion warfare is a bad way to settle something as important as war. Wars became more about who could field well-trained armies with effective technology, and less about morale or the bravery of individual knights. Wars also got bigger, encompassing multiple theatres and larger sea battles. The effectiveness of a single combat at breaking the enemy's morale lessened, particularly in a war happening across different countries and continents. A similar process occurred in Japan during the Warring States periods, as samurai were replaced with massed infantry and firearms. In both cases, single combat on the battlefield was rendered tactically obsolete by new weaponry, while the already rare practice of prearranged champion combat was rendered socially and strategically pointless. Although this form of warfare disappeared, these practices adapted and lived on for some time afterwards. The knightly class was not quite ready to give up on their culture. From this we get the practice of the Paz de Armes, in which knights would post up by a bridge and challenge all comers to fight them for passage. This was mocked so brilliantly in Monty Python the Holy Grail, with both the Black Knight and the Knights Who Say Nee. It's also referenced in Don Quixote by Cervantes, another work which satirised medieval romantic chivalry. But although the idea of this kind of pointless, bombastic and performative violence is quite amusing, there is, I think, quite a lot of pathos to be found in the decline of these knightly castes. These were men raised with a certain belief system who found themselves swiftly alienated from a rapidly changing world. Economically dislocated and quite quickly culturally maligned, they seemed willing to engage in more and more desperate feats of martial prowess to prove their continuing worth. The same is true of Japanese samurai, with numerous examples of people who were completely unfit for normal work having to sell their swords and armour as they fell further and further into debt. Now this isn't to say that I think the decline of a violent, exploitative, aristocratic class is to be mourned. There's no point in romanticising these warrior groups, while their codes of chivalry were also mostly propaganda, more so than reality. But there is something quite sad, and in some ways very modern, about social groups losing their place in a rapidly evolving world, and finding themselves economically and culturally adrift. So, a quick summary. Single combat and champion warfare seems to have existed in various parts of the ancient world, and survived right through to the Middle Ages. That said, most of the early examples we have are essentially mythological or fictional in nature, serving as religious propaganda or, later on, as useful narrative devices. There is better evidence for limited combat between small groups of champions. However, this was limited to internal disputes rather than settling large wars. There is also very little evidence that they worked, with violence tending to break out in various other forms pretty quickly. While champion combat as a form of warfare declined in most parts of the world hundreds of years ago, it lived on in the form of dueling until the 1800s. In fact, in 1952, Chilean President Salvador Allende accepted a challenge from a political rival, although both men fired into the air. 
While the military and political importance of championing combat has disappeared, it continues to influence our understanding of ancient warfare and shapes tropes like that of the cowboy gunslinger that we'd be familiar with from movies. Perhaps this is because it represents an ideal of honourable heroic combat which is unknown in the modern world, if it ever existed at all. Okay, so thanks for listening. I hope you're finding the podcast interesting, but please get in touch with any comments or suggestions. The next episode will be about totalitarian violence, dehumanisation and the treatment of migrants. It's quite a heavy episode, but it's a topic which I think is more important than ever. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.